You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Welcome. I'm Chris Scott, host of Meeting Pod and contributing editor at Meeting Place and Alt Meat Magazines. Today's guest not only plays a key role in the academic development of meat scientists who focus on food safety, but also participates in research efforts himself that find new ways to prevent the spread of pathogens during food processing. Dr. Francisco Diaz-Gonzalez oversees programs at the University of Georgia College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences that allow students to take a deep dive into developing safe food supply protocols. The programs also focus on issues that aim to ensure clean environments inside meat plants as part of the regular curriculum at UGA. Our conversation will cover both aspects of Dr. Diaz-Gonzalez's academic and research journeys and offer insights into the implications of the findings of his research teams. Welcome to Meeting Pod, Francisco, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for the invitation. It is a real pleasure to be part of your podcast and looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Right back at you. Let's start by focusing on the more general aspects of safety in the overall food supply. What are some of the more major advances you've seen in food safety efforts by processors, especially meat companies, in terms of working towards successfully limiting the spread of foodborne illnesses on the production level? Well, I've been doing this work on food safety for 25 years. And yeah, you've seen quite a bit of changes in the last couple of decades. Some of those changes, for example, relate to, in the case of meat industries, uh, widespread adoption of HACCP because of it was originally mandated. The impact of HACCP, everyone agrees that it was a really positive I- intervention to minimize foodborne pathogens. At the same time, the meat industry and in general society has become much more aware on the need to control zoonotic organisms coming from different livestock species, and interventions have been included along the way as part of the HACCP uh, system. And also the other major development that we've seen in recent years is the application of molecular methods, particularly the whole genome sequencing to to identify strains and uh, help us uh, characterize and type the different strains involving cases or involving contamination. The adoption of of rapid methods of detection, such as PCR, that has been helping us on on our efforts to track foodborne pathogens in the meat supply. At the same time, the different companies in in meat production have used multiple other technologies, for example, in other cases, high-pressure processing. And in more recent years, the use of automation for the purpose of optimizing slaughter, for example, in the case of of chicken production, automation has become a really, really widespread. So there are multiple advances that we've seen in, in again, in the last couple of decades in which I am sure in, in many ways have contributed to tackling the problem with foodborne pathogen contamination. Another one that also is important to mention here is the fact of, for example, approaches of using control of pathogens on at the farm, for example, in the case of of poultry, the use of vaccines that are being effective in, in reducing some particular serotypes of salmonella, like typhimurium, 
So that's also, so what I'm saying is trying to provide a, a number of different examples of what uh, what has been done in recent years. So there are a number of places where these kinds of steps can be launched to help prevent contamination further down the line. That's correct. Okay. Can you provide some context, especially I'm interested in reminding our listeners when HACCP became more voluntarily available versus mandated as to where the meat processing industry stands today in preventing the spread of such pathogens as Listeria monocytogenes, Salmonella, and other bacteria that can spark illnesses and wreak havoc if they are consumed within the general food supply. Going back to my previous remarks, the industry has, has made remarkable progress in contributing in every aspect possible to minimize pathogen contamination. However, everyone recognizes that there is a lot more that needs to be done. With the current estimates of, of salmonella contamination, for example, in every year with an estimate of about 1 million cases every year, a good portion of that uh, million cases are estimated to be due to livestock, in particular poultry or uh, poultry, close to one quarter of those cases are due to salmonella. And right now, concerted efforts that the USDA is leading in, in trying to provide some strategies to tackle those numbers. It, it's a challenging, I guess, the, going back to, it's a, it's a complex problem that's in, in many ways that everyone has to recognize. At the same time, there are many aspects that the industry is doing good, but it's, it's a complex problem that it cannot be solved. Everyone agrees that it cannot be solved by a sing, single silver bullet. It has to be a combination of different interventions to be able to make a, a significant impact on reducing the, the foodborne cases caused by meat and poultry products. Now, let's turn a little bit toward the food safety programs at UGA. Are there particular methodologies of areas of focus that students are learning today compared with what they might have studied, say, a decade or so ago? Yes, and and some of them reflect the same uh, trends that we've seen in uh, what we have been adapting in industry. For example, the emphasis on molecular methods, the right now, uh, a good number of programs, especially graduate, graduate programs in the area of food safety, we emphasize the need for learning bioinformatics, molecular biology, genomics, which for the future food safety microbiology expert will be really critical to be able to contribute at the point of, of their careers in contributing to reducing foodborne illness and improving the food safety of our food of the supply chain in the country. So that sounds like things are a lot more complex than they would have been when we didn't know as much as we did 10 or 15 years ago. Yes, uh, and uh, as you know, the world has changed. And right now, there's a lot of pressure, too, with the uh, emergence, recent emergence of artificial intelligence in every aspect of our life. The students are going to be more pressured to quickly adapt themselves to the changes in technology that we're experiencing pretty much in every aspect of our life. So that calls for flexibility as well as an ability to shift f- focus and pivots as needed. That's correct. I guess that uh, it's a flexibility from the student's point of view and also from the educational programs that we need to be more nimble in being able to offer the kind of education that will be really critical by the time students graduate. Absolutely. And speaking of that, what are some of the qualities that successful food safety specialists needs to bring to the table when enrolling in programs like those offered at UGA's College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences? 
And what attributes might give these students an edge when it comes to taking the next steps toward working to prevent the spread of pathogens or even simply conducting research in those areas? Well, I guess some of the critical skills, personal skills that are are being uh, stressed for years uh, that we really need to to know is, is students should continue to be critical thinkers sure continue to be adaptable to change and especially in this times that we're living and at the same time they should strive to be excellent academically in learning the fundamentals of the science that it, it evolves and understanding that science is is a moving target sometimes leadership is really critical our companies that hire students is a critical trait that they are looking for Individuals that are adaptable to environment and are able to lead diverse and complex teams. That's really critical. So it's a number of, of different traits that we definitely, and, and also the understanding of technology. It is really critical that the students have developed the skills to be able to adapt and understand that our world is changing. And in the life, that, in the time that we're living, I guess it is starting from the moment that they are grabbed their, their first electronic gadget. And that sounds like it also means that the teachers in your position, for example, also need to be flexible as things are developing technologically and approach-wise and the needs of the producers down the line as well. That's correct. At the same time, our academic programs should be renewing ourselves by hiring the newest, brightest uh, academic that's coming down the pipe. So it's really critical to maintain and refresh our faculty faculty rosters. Absolutely. Now, in that same vein, can you describe for our listeners some of the programs that differentiate UGA from other agricultural schools when it comes to food safety? Hi, Chris. I'm really pleased that you're asking me this question because one of the, the lines that I use for to brag about University of Georgia in our uh, programs on food safety is from all the different universities in this country, we are very proud that Georgia has the largest number of food safety faculty working on different aspects of uh, food safety microbiology. I can give you the list of all the different faculty in different departments, not only in our center, in our department, in our college. There are multiple other individuals in in the veterinary school, in the College of Engineering, in the Arts and Science College. If you do the headcount, we have almost 30 different what we would call principal investigators that could conduct different types of research on different aspects of food safety microbiology. So that's one aspect. And the strength of having this network is not just the individual itself, is the ability to network internally within UGA. There are multiple efforts that are currently being conducted within UGA. And this offers, I guess, going back to your question is, What is unique, what can we offer uniquely for students is the ability that student can come and have a multidisciplinary experience of working with maybe an advisor in our department, with other faculty involved in the vet school or in the School of Public Health because the interconnection that we have internally. So that's one of the strengths that I, I can, again, proudly say that we have at the University of Georgia. And one could argue that that level of communication and working with other people in other parts of the school helps the students develop their leadership skills, their communication skills, 
And all that's going to be wound up into the next steps as they move into the professional careers. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Now, with all the efforts that are being placed on preventing the spread of these pathogens into the nation's food supply, how can food safety experts leverage what has been uncovered when consumers still insist on eating rare beef products or undercooking pork or even washing poultry before cooking, which, of course, potentially spreads bacteria throughout a kitchen? Well, that's a really good question, Chris. The reality is that the consumer needs to know that we're still far from controlling all the pathogens. Yes, there has been a lot of efforts from industry, government, academia to tackle those problems, but we're far from from getting to a point in which if you buy a hamburger, it's got to be completely safe to eat even if you eat it raw. So it is the recognition that we were consuming a product that comes from the farm and as in the farm, they will be subjected to contamination with multiple zoonotic organisms in their intestine and that eventually can be transmitted and spread onto the meats and poultry. So that's consumer education. What you're talking about is really critical. It's the reality is, unfortunately, the bulk of foodborne disease in this country are not the ones that normally we hear from the outbreaks. The bulk of foodborne disease happens because the consumer made something unsafe at home, like cross-contamination with handling the chicken, as you mentioned in your question, washing poultry before cooking. That's a major error. That the only thing that if somebody does that, they're going to spread the bacteria in the kitchen and then eventually it's going to make it into ready-to-eat foods. And that's when people are going to become sick. So the consumer education is critical. The use of a thermometer, proper cooking, proper handling of all products, and in many ways for your podcast, really critical handling of of meats and poultry is essential to prevent foodborne diseases. So we're far from, from a point in which you can just say, okay, the consumer can do whatever they want. I think it's consumer education is really critical. We should insist in programs dedicated to help promote some of those safe practices that are yet to be widely adapted by the consumer. And of course, those are the types of things that your students will need to know as they're moving through their paces so that that messaging continues to develop and improve as they become researchers or work in plants or consult with food processors so that that message gets out to the consumer and is repeated as much as it needs to be repeated. Yes, that's the critical role of the next generation of yeah of professionals in recognizing that the consumer plays a critical step in uh, in preventing foodborne disease. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to one of the more fascinating recent research projects that you co-authored regarding Listeria monocytogenes that frequently contaminate food at the processing level. Your team found that using a combination of blue light and a specific type of polystyrene successfully and effectively destroyed both dried listeria cells and biofilms of listeria. Can you briefly describe where that study stands now that the findings have been published and what the next steps might be toward bringing such a landmark process to scale for use in the nation's food processing plants? Thank you, Chris. Thank you for asking one of the the projects that we're actively working as we speak. Yeah, blue light is a unique type of visible light that has been proven that it can kill different bacteria. So this is 
The, we already knew by the time we started this project that when you subject cells, bacterial cells, to a light with a wavelength of approximately 400, 470 nanometers, that you could inactivate viable cells of bacteria. We, we knew that. So what was unique about this work is that we were aiming to treat one biofilms. That's what's relatively novel. And of course, with listeria, listeria is a problem in, in many food, food industries, not just the meat industry, because it contaminates the environment of processing plants. It can get established on the surfaces of different materials, stainless steel, plastic, tiles, you name it. So it is, this project was intended to provide some initial data on whether we could inactivate those biofilms. And also, we use also dry cells as a quick way to get uh, cells on a surface, let's say, because biofilms, sometimes it takes time for them to, time for growing them. So that's what makes this study novel. We are, and that paper, the paper that you're referring was, is our first publication on this topic right now. We have at least three different students or researchers working on this area. We have, we're looking at different other aspects of how we can better the, assess the possibility that we could actually apply it for control. I am the first one to recognize that blue light has its limitations. You might be familiar with, or a lot of more people are more familiar with ultraviolet light or UV light. It's a much more mature technology because it's been, it's been used for many, many antimicrobial applications. UV light actually, in many ways, is, is, is much more efficient than blue light. If you put the side-by-side UV light and blue light, you will get more inactivation from UV light than blue light. Now, why are we using blue light? Blue light is considered to be a safer alternative to UV light. The case of UV light, everyone knows that you got to be careful that you should not expose yourself to UV light, your eyesight could be damaged. Your skin can also cause damage. And also in the long run, a UV light can cause cancer. So blue light provides a safer alternative to UV light. That's one of the, the, the most important aspects that we're hoping that once we characterize under what circumstances or what factors influence the effect of blue light on bacterial cells, we will be able to come up with a viable application for food processing plants. When people ask me about whether, oh, can we start putting it on plants? We're not there yet. We are still in the proof of concept period. It looks really promising, as you cited on the on our results of our paper, in which, yes, you can kill them if they are on surfaces. And uh, yeah, there is some influence about materials. It doesn't mean that we should be using polystyrene it just shows the, the results that the effect will be effect will, will be impacted, but what kind of uh, surface the biofilms or the dry cells are going to be on. So that's intriguing. So that's a kind of the, that we are trying to better characterize this technology to eventually move to the next step, which would be the, the application. That would be the, the ultimate goal. Just to tell you that right now, if you want to buy a, a blue light for or antimicrobial purposes, you're not going to find it. The blue lights that you find or the blue, blue light lamps that you find are for other purposes. For example, 
Blue lights are very common for 3D printing and for polymerization of plastic materials at the industrial level. So the kind of plants that we've been buying are actually not for the purpose of, of inactivating bacteria, but for for other applications. So there's still nobody selling blue light lamps for killing bacteria yet. Yeah, so this is very early in the process for, for that ultimate goal, right? That's correct. Right. And on that note, finally, I'm going to ask you to put on a bit of a crystal ball hat. Can you offer us a little bit of a forecast on where the food safety imperative is heading in the next few years or so? And what types of initiatives could work best for meat processing companies in the near future? That's a, a really tough question to... Oh, I, I know. <laughs> to grab the crystal ball and tell me what are, where are we headed? What Right now, we can see that definitely some of the trends that we're seeing, traceability is, is critical. Right now, everyone agrees that traceability will be necessary to be able to, to react faster whenever we have a, a major crisis. So on uh, the advance of, of molecular methods and, and some biosensor methods will definitely will get us to a point to the holy grail, for example, for detection. The ideal detection system of the future will be one that you don't even need to process this food sample, maybe just uh, like the ones in, in, in science fiction movies in which you can just light up a, a beam and then you get the detection of the pathogen. And you can see that that's possible. What we're seeing right now with the advances of technology and the enormous potential that the application of technology that we did not know much about uh, 10 years ago, like artificial intelligence, machine learning, data analytics, what those te- techniques can do, it's just incredible. Our ability to identify pathogens and right now some of the attribution models that have been developed in order to assess the, the origin of the different bacteria. So it's in, some, in many ways technology will continue to have a major, a major impact on how we're going to be, be able to continue operating. And of course, right now, the other aspect that we should not forget is, is remember that the consumers drive the market and drive changes in companies. The consumer demand for, for example, right now, what has been in the horizon are all the, the emphasis in uh, cultivated meat and all the implications that cultivated meat is going to bring, whether it's real alternative to, to the traditional meat production or not, that's something yet to be assessed. So other aspects of possible technologies like involved with uh, 3D printing, which is something that... So there are many, many aspects in the horizon that, that definitely could you could start speculating what kind of future we're going to be seeing 10 years from now. Not to talk about all the pressures involved with uh, climate change and and emerging pathogens, because we haven't talked about emerging pathogens, how those have been changing throughout the years. It's not going to be the same organisms that we were having 10 years ago. We may have some other organisms in uh, 10 years later. Anyway, that's a, that's a little bit, uh, we could spend a lot of time just talking about this question, what what's coming, but all of that could be just speculation. No, I appreciate that because that basically is an example of the flexibility that's going to be needed as other things crop up that we haven't seen yet or wouldn't have anticipated. And let's not forget, too, the place of robotics and surfaces and other 
technologies that are becoming more of a regular process in various meat plants. Of course. Yeah, that's a very important one. Well, that's terrific. Thank you so much. That's a wrap for this episode of Meeting Pod. Our thanks to Dr. Francisco Diaz-Gonzalez of the University of Georgia's College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences for his insights on food safety. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Until next time. Remember to tune in on Mondays to get the inside track on the people and the processes that drive the protein industry. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Meeting Place and Alt Meat magazines on social media, and be sure to visit our websites at meetingplace.com and altmeat.net.